The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the, the ruler of all of all this earth, of our lives, and of every detail in them. And so we can come to you and lay our requests and our needs before you and know that you hear, that you have power, and you are able to act. And because of your concern and your love for us, you will act to do us good. So we ask you this morning, Lord, take your word here and grow us. And particularly take these topics that are, that are in this particular passage and move us, particularly move us with Jesus towards others. Make us aware and alert and move us. So take your word and, and grow your church this morning. Attend to us, mature us. We say thank you for the surety that you hear and that you will act that you are good. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We like win-win situations. A scenario where you and I relate to each other in a way that benefits us both. Nobody loses, everybody wins. We like that. And in fact, a few weeks back in a sermon, I actually mentioned this idea, brought it up, and pointed out how much of what we think of as ministry is in fact just this sort of situation. It's win-win. For me, the, the one doing the ministry, it is a win for me in that I am, I am blessed by it. I enjoy it. I find great pleasure in it. And, and I gain for myself actually reward in heaven. That's what we as the ministers experience. And then the one being ministered to also is blessed as, as that person is helped, brought to Jesus, the church has grown, they win too. So the minister and the one ministered too, it's a win-win. It is. And God wants us to see that because seeing ministry as that sort of a scenario, a, a gigantic win-win actually draws us to it and encourages us to engage in ministry. God wants us to see that. And yet, we should be honest. In another sense, much of ministry is also a gigantic lose-win scenario. That's true, too. And the mature, genuine Christian minister is very clear on that. And okay with it. I don't mean like yippy-skippy excited about it. I'm talking about like some bizarre sadist here. No normal person looks at loss laid in front of him and says, give me more of that, I love it. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about how, in reality, a mature, genuine Christian minister is fine with, is settled with, is content with, and actually willing to embrace loss for the sake of something else, for the sake of someone else. Willing to take a loss if it will help someone else to win. 
That's mature Christian ministry, and that's where Paul is this morning in the middle of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He's still carefully moving towards this foolish boasting that he's going to have to engage in. He knows he's going to have to engage in this, and he's going to adequately explain himself and his ministry there in Corinth in the the face of those so-called super apostles who are attacking him. He needs to explain himself and to point out that I, not them, I am God's man here, and my message, not theirs, is the message that God sends. He's going to have to engage in this foolish boasting, comparing himself to them. He knows that. But he's kind of warming up towards that, as we've seen. In a way, setting the stage by dealing with some peripheral problems that they had as they thought of him. And this morning, he's pointing out and explaining himself, really, pointing out his willingness to be humbled and made low. Made to look like nothing, in fact. If that will help the Corinthians to be exalted, to be lifted up. He's willing, and the false teachers who oppose him in the end are not willing. And that shows who they are. Obviously, then, as we look at that, we're going to see there's a type of ministry that we should admire and emulate, and there's a type of ministry that we should be warned about and should avoid and shun. So we'll learn about that. But also as we do that, what we'll see here is some, I think, a sweet reminder of the glory and the kindness of Jesus, who was this way first for us, willing to lose that we might win. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read the passage. This is in 2 Corinthians 11 beginning in verse 7 down through verse 15. I'm going to read it and then draw two observations from it. Verse 7, Paul writes, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. And what I do, I will continue to do, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. 2 Corinthians 11. Make two observations. Here's the first. Christ-like ministers embrace self-humbling in order to exalt others. Christ-like ministers embrace self-humbling in order to exalt others. Verse 7 is connected to verse 5, where, as we saw last week, Paul asserted that he is not in any way inferior to these other guys, these so-called super-apostles. And verse 6 explains why not. But then 7, 
Unless, however, unless I sinned in some way in humbling myself that you might be exalted, which, of course, Paul does not actually think is sin, quite the contrary, but he puts it that way to point out their, their very warped perspective on some things here. Odd as it may be, it is actually being suggested that Paul has done something wrong here. What he's talking about has to do with money, broadly speaking. When Paul was in Corinth, ministering there in person for close to two years, he humbled himself. That is, rest of verse 7, he preached God's gospel for free, free of charge. Was that a sin? Well, of course not. But it did strike a nerve in Corinth. Because, as we've noticed before, in Corinth and really through much of the, the, the Greek world at that time, people held trained speakers and philosophers and teachers in very high regard. And if a good one, if a, a well-known and skilled one came to town, he could charge a substantial sum to come and listen to him or really to kind of join into his school and listen to him regularly, be taught by him regularly. Charge a lot for that. It's a bit like today how maybe a former politician or a cultural icon can come to town and, and can charge a speaking fee to deliver a talk about his or her wisdom and their motivational stories. Well, you know, the, the higher the celebrity, the, the higher the fee, and then and now both. People charged lots of money to teach. And then at the same time, locals who were wealthy and powerful would pay lots of money to such teachers and speakers, show them great hospitality, almost like paying a retainer to kind of make this guy mine. Because think about how that would enhance your reputation. If the hottest ticket in town is staying at your house and regularly eating with you and hangs out with you and you're always by his side and you kind of maybe control his schedule a little bit, you must be somebody if somebody is yours. People did that all the time. They would charge a great fee and then would be paid a great fee, kind of as a retainer. And Paul, when he was in Corinth, didn't follow either of those common practices. He didn't charge anybody anything and he didn't accept anything from anybody in Corinth. Nor would he. First time points out, and that's not going to change going forward. That's how I am. He came and he taught at no charge and went about meeting his needs by working with his own hands as a laborer. Aghast at the shame. People are, as a laborer, he worked. Not as a teacher or as some sort of sophisticated person. As a laborer, he worked. And when he had need that wasn't met, it says he robbed other churches. Not literally, of course, but he took money from dirt poor Macedonia. We've met them, remember? He took money from dirt poor Macedonia so as to minister the gospel to wealthy Corinthians. Aghast. People are aghast when they hear that. Think about it. Kind of process it. He works with his hands like a laborer and takes money from these dirt poor churches to minister in this wealthy place who are just begging to pay him. He won't do it. Very consciously, and very deliberately, Paul chooses that course. He's not a victim of circumstance. It says he's humbling himself in verse 7. 
not being humbled. He's humbling himself on purpose, choosing a course of action that he knows is going to lead to his humbling. He will end up low, and he will end up looking like it. And remember, in this context, humble is not a Christian virtue. It's an insult. It's like saying weakling, nobody, humiliated nothing. He's going to teach for free, guaranteeing that he and his message, you know, if, if this kind of celebrity draws this price and this kind of celebrity draws this price, what does free say about you? says you're a nobody, and what you have to say is probably not worth anything. And Paul's deliberately going that route. He's going to make himself seem unimportant, and he's going to for sure create a smaller crowd, and he's going to create a situation where those who come to listen to him, who are used to listening to speakers, are going to see a guy who looks like he works for a living, because he usually does. The social dynamic there is, is going to be one of suspicion and even one of, of looking down at Paul. It's really hard to teach somebody who is suspicious of you and looking down at you. And it's hard to live in that situation too. When Paul deliberately, consciously embraces that, he's embracing financial instability and fatigue and stress because he's going to have to burn the candle at both ends to work two full-time jobs wondering if money is going to come in, if enough money is going to come in. And all the while facing the suspicion and the attack and the criticism, the judgmentalism of those around him. This path of humbling was a hard one. It surely would have been easier to go some other route or to have stayed home in the first place. There's nothing about this that would have felt much like win for Paul, a lot of loss. But he's content with that, willing to deliberately embrace it. Not, notice this, not because it was good for him. Not because it would help with his own character development and help mature him, though that would be true. It is true. If, when, we, when we step into humbling situations in life, it often are, it's a place where we grow, where we are, we are changed often for good. To, to address things that make us proud, to, to kind of cut those things off, that, that's a good thing. But that would be from another passage, and that would be another sermon. That's not here. Paul embraces humbling here, get this clearly, for the sake of loving evangelistic mission. Period. That's why. Humbling myself, verse, verse 7 says, so that you might be exalted. Specifically, exalted by God's gospel. That's what he means. His goal, Paul's goal, is that the Corinthians would experience the biggest win of all, that they would be exalted, lifted up high by God's good news, the message from God about what he has done in sending God the Son, Jesus, to do what we cannot ever do for ourselves. God the Son, the second person of the one triune God who has been God for forever past 
He is exalted. He is the one worthy of all sorts of praise and honor and glory. Anything you could think of, that is his right as almighty God. He is the exalted one. And yet this exalted one did not consider that something to be held onto and grasped, a right to be held. But he humbled himself. He became a man became a suffering, crucified servant and a substitute payment for the sin of human beings like us. That's what he did on purpose, deliberately, consciously. And anybody who by surrendered heart faith trusts Christ's cross to save you, for you, something glorious happens. Something glorious happens. You know this. You know what I'm going to say. So, think it through. The exalted one humbled himself that something glorious might happen to you. What? That you would be exalted and made an heir of the kingdom of heaven. Made an heir of the kingdom of heaven. Not just have your little human life made decent. No, not that at all. You were made an heir of the kingdom of heaven. <gasps> we, we are human beings. We are flesh and blood. We are fallen. We are rebels. We stand justly condemned as sinful human beings. We are adopted and made children of God, heirs of heaven. My, oh my, oh my, oh my, oh my. What an exaltation. An astonishing exaltation. The sovereign king claimed you as his kid. It's astonishing. Astonishing. You who should be condemned have become forgiven and not just left there but made a child of God, exalted in Christ, an heir of everything such that all of this is yours without any payment from you whatsoever at all. Not a dime. Nothing. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Paul preached that and like Christ lived it and refused to let the Corinthians confuse things by paying for their exaltation. Not a dime. I don't want, this is so important, I don't want to get confused a bit on this. And he also didn't want them to let themselves get confused by feeling they were, they were Paul's benefactors. This guy who talks about this belongs to me. No, 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 I'm, I'm the apostle of Christ. I don't belong to you. I stand independent from you. And for your good, you need to see that. It is very easy for us as human beings to get confused on these sorts of things. And particularly in this context where Paul's bringing this message for the first time and laying the seeds down and planting them and watering them as a missionary in, in brand new soil. 
He wants to be extremely clear about this, that we would not get confused. Payment and grace are on different planets. And if you try to mix them together, it's not grace anymore. And so Paul wants to be really, really, really clear. You're exalted by grace, not by anything you've done, not by anything you contribute, only by God and his grace. This is profoundly wise on Paul's part. In other situations, he obviously, he takes money from Macedonia. So it's right in the text. Because he's not ministering to the Macedonians with that money. He's letting the Macedonians be ministry partners with him for Corinth. In the other places, he'll teach that pastors who are laboring long time in a place, it's appropriate for the church to pay them. They're not missionaries. They're not acting the same way. But everywhere, all through it, the principle needs to be clear that grace does not come with a bill afterwards. Separate. Profoundly wise on his part. And Paul, as a missionary, is really clear that he wants to make sure that we understand that our exaltation is by the grace of God through the gospel of the one who himself has exalted and humbled himself that we would be lifted up. That's what Paul's doing there. What do we take from it? What do we do with it? Well, I think we can learn some things about how we, how we deal with money, for sure. We want to be clear that we also, in every way that we can, be, be sure that ministry is not attached to payment. Be clear about that. And there's something here about how to identify true and false ministers, for sure. Notice the motives. We'll say a little bit more about this a little bit next point, but, but Paul's surely drawing a contrast here. I laid down my life that you might hear this. Those guys won't. They're in it for the money. Watch. There's something to learn there. And those that we find who, who are willing to embrace the loss of humbling in order to see others exalted by the gospel, we should follow them, we should support them and, and, and propel them forward. They're worthy of respect and worthy of being followed. We can learn those things and probably more, but I think the main point for us to see here and to wrestle with is the deliberateness of the self-humbling for the purpose of witness. Paul saw what was needed and maybe made some educated guesses about what was likely to be needed before he knew for sure, and then he took that step on purpose so as to make it most likely that others would be sweetly changed by this gospel of grace. Paul does that as a missionary. Most of us aren't and never will be missionaries. Maybe some will be. I don't know. I don't know. But right now, most of us aren't missionaries, but we all are ministers. Every Christian is. We all have some sort of a ministry to carry out in the church, and we all have neighbors and coworkers and classmates and family members who need to know this Jesus, who need to understand this exalted one and his humbling that we might be exalted. We know people who don't know this and need to. So what would we say about ourselves on this point, right there next to those to whom we are called to minister? 
Do we see those around us in need of the gospel? And do we then tend to ask, what am I comfortable doing here? Or do we then tend to ask, what needs to be done? If this person, if these people were to have a chance to be sweetly changed by the gospel. Do I tend to ask, what am I comfortable doing here? Or do I tend to ask, what needs to be done here? Would what needs to be done here perhaps be taking my eyes off my own agenda to really engage with a person and really actually truly care for him? Is that it? That would be needed? Or maybe devoting yourself to prayer for an opportunity to connect with this person. Actually devoting yourself to prayer for an opportunity. Lord, would you provide place and time for me to talk to this one? Or maybe it's initiating a conversation or taking that conversation deliberately to the next level of heart engagement. Or maybe it's when you go to the next level of heart engagement, offering to pray for that person. They, they actually share something with you. And you know, I could bring up, so I could ask them if I can pray for them, but that would, be to, that would be to risk like, oh no, I don't want you, I'm not religious. That would be to risk something there, so I won't do that. Or should you? Or maybe it's taking the time to invite someone to a meal or to your home. Or maybe it's actually inviting a friend to come to church. Or maybe explaining the basic message of the gospel. Do you know what it is the Bible says about how we can know God? All of those things, there's a spectrum there, right? All of them will cost you something. All of them will bring up, likely, some sort of a loss today or this afternoon, at least a loss of time and maybe a loss of reputation, maybe some sort of a social awkwardness, and maybe a straight-up ostracism if you find that you stepped on a landmine and that person does not now, now does not like you. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Probably something will be a loss there. Not all those things are equally appropriate in every situation. I'm not saying you should find the thing that is most awkward and do that. Maybe not. Maybe not. But the point is, deliberateness, a thinking in my mind, driven by love, a thinking in my mind that's going to say, what would need to be done here if, if the next step here towards connecting this person to this Jesus would possibly happen? What might the next step need to be? I'll take that step. That's what Paul's modeling for us here. He's thinking it through. What would be the... I take that step. Paul's modeling that for us, but Christian, ultimately, I don't want to be like Paul. Ultimately, Paul doesn't want me to be like Paul. Ultimately, we want to be like Jesus. So lift your eyes up past Paul to the one that Paul's actually emulating, who was himself rich, but for our sakes became poor. Remember, we read this earlier in the book. 
that by his poverty we might become rich. The one who was highly exalted but for your sake humbled himself to the point of even humiliating death on the cross that you might be exalted to everlasting glory and joy. Please lift up your eyes past Paul and see Christ in all of his glory and all of his beauty. And don't try to pay him back by humbling yourself. Watch this. Don't try to pay him back. Grace and payment are on different planets. Don't try to pay him back by humbling yourself. You did that for me, Lord, out of this for you. Nope. That's not how it works. See Christ in all of his beauty and honor him and thank him by leaning into the deep truth of the exaltation that he won for you. Follow this. This this can get a little complicated. Follow this. Don't pay him back. Lean into the deep truth of the exaltation that he really, truly, honestly did buy for you. The deep truth that because he has exalted you in Christ, you can't ever actually outrun him. And you can't ever outrun his gracious provision for you. You can't ever outrun his blessing and favor and honor for you. You may, following him, step into loss, 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 loss. And in the end, you will find, actually, that was all gain. Oh, it is win-win. I stepped into it thinking it was loss-win, Actually, because it's so much win for me that I win. Follow that. Let me say it again slightly differently. We most honor Christ when we see his humbling of himself to save us and his laying out the path of here's what deliberate mission looks like. We most honored him not by thinking, well, then I owe you one. No, no. I'm no debtor to you. I don't, I don't think like that. I think instead like, so I really am secure. I really am exalted. I really am high and lifted up. I really am an heir of all things. And so this loss actually can't hurt me. I believe you. And I give it up. I believe you and I lay down my life knowing that I will find it in the end. I will win. Trust the Lord who has exalted you and step into loss realizing that you are an heir of heaven in him and everything is gained for you. Ironically. That's the first point. And I think that's, uh, that is challenging, I think. What needs to be done? Step into it. Now the second point. Paul shifts gears a little bit because now he's ready to kind of like rip back the covers and expose someone. A contrary type of minister. So we talk about the mature, the genuine Christian minister who embraces self-humbling 
Here's the second point. Beware of self-serving false ministers who masquerade as servants of Christ. Beware of self-serving false ministers who masquerade as servants of Christ. Verse 12, Paul comes back around to the comparison and contrast that really kind of lies behind this whole section here. These other guys, these opponents of his who really we've been seeing them throughout the whole book and now they come to center stage. But up to this point, Paul's been describing them in rather neutral terms. You recall back in chapter 10, he he even kind of said like, that's for the sake of argument. Let's just say that these guys say they're Christ's. Well, they should acknowledge that I am too. For the sake of argument. He's kind of, he's dealt with them in rather neutral terms. I mean, he did just warm to saying they teach a different Christ and a different gospel, which is serious. So he's been critical of them. He's been sarcastic about them. But he hasn't really unloaded on them until now. He clarifies what's really going on here. They are trying to claim that they carry on ministry just like Paul, but better than him. They are superior apostles. And they really, really, really would love to kind of peer pressure Paul into taking money from the Corinthians because they are in it for the money. And that looks bad if Paul won't take money too. So they want him to do that. Paul knows that and says, I won't. He wants to continue on as he has before in order to cut off all opportunity, in order to expose them, because they need to be exposed. Verse 13, they are false apostles, he says. Not superior, false. They are deceitful workmen. They're not one of Christ's men. They are like the one who deceived Eve by cunning. They're trying hard to hide it. They are disguising themselves, masquerading as apostles of Christ, just like their father, the one they are really working for, who was a deceiver from the beginning and likewise masquerades as an angel of light. So Paul says, none of this should be any surprise, like father, like sons. They're deceivers because their father is the deceiver. He masquerades, they masquerade. These opponents are not misguided Christians. They are not slightly enamored with the world and therefore a little bit off and teaching something wrong. They're servants of Satan. Deceiving and corrupting and following along after Paul so as to kill the newborn church that Paul just planted. They're full of deception and they will get what they deserve, the same thing their master gets. That is shockingly hard. It's both barrels at the same time. These guys are working for Satan. So, why is Paul so mean about it? Because the wolves are in amongst the sheep and he loves a church. That's why. Paul doesn't relish being mean or mean-spirited or firm, but he realizes that there's a danger here, so watch out. This is an important warning. And it is particularly an important warning aimed at them. We're not exactly their same situation, but it is a call to everyone who reads this, including us, to watch out for wolves 
dressed as sheep or wolves dressed as shepherds. It's a call to watch out for that. And it's also a call to watch out at least for those who act wolfish. Because you can't tell right off. At this point, what we would we would find that these guys, Paul's clear about this is what they are. But at many times in the past, as we've looked through this book of 2 Corinthians, at many times in the past, we've seen, well, that would be what Satan's workers would do, and that's also what misguided Christians do sometimes too. I mean, take one of the things we've looked at recently. Selling poor doctrine with wonderful eloquence. Well, that's the wolves. But that also can be a misguided Christian. Christians sometimes take things that they think are true, that, that, they, that they like, that they're really attracted to, and they sell it with a veneer that is so attractive and gathers a crowd and seems beautiful. Watch out for that. Wolves or wolfishness. Hard to tell the difference sometimes. Paul's point is watch out because that's around. It's in the church. There's something masquerading here. Wolves or wolfishness. You can't tell the difference. So take care. Drill past the package into the substance and look. What do they actually teach? It is possible that falsehood is around. So look. There's a warning there. But if Paul were just to leave it at that, we might be kind of on edge, but not exactly sure about what to do with it. He says, three times here, he uses this word, um, dressed up as or disguised as. Some versions say masquerading as. It's as if we're at a masquerade party. And he says, your mortal enemy is here dressed up. Put you on edge to watch, but you don't know what to look for. So thankfully, he's helpful and says, here's what he's wearing. He's masquerading as a servant or minister of righteousness. Oh, that's helpful. And you know what? That is always helpful. Because that gets right at the core of the truth of the faith. Remember last week we talked about these concentric circles of there are things on the outside with, with which Christians can have gracious and gentle disagreement. Because it's kind of like at the I think level. But as you come in, it becomes more important and more important until you get to the core at which if we disagree, you're not a Christian. That's the core that we need to watch for and draw a very careful and tight guarded circle around. And Paul's little clue here about what to look for, that's the core. They masquerade as servants or ministers, same word, of righteousness. That's how they're dressed up. 
And it's a really good disguise because it sounds so good. Who can be against the minister of righteousness? Isn't righteousness a good thing? Absolutely. God himself is righteous. God is the definition of righteousness. So anybody who comes along saying, I want to help you grow in, attain in, find and become more righteous, wonderful. That's good. Oh, where is it? Watch. Watch. This is what we have to watch if we're going to look at the core. Righteousness. Oh, for sure. Let's be about that. So how do you tell me I can gain and grow in righteousness? And what these guys said is what countless religious people say, even many people who call themselves Christians say. They say it with great eloquence and they draw a crowd. They use the word J-E-S-U-S. They use the word gospel. They talk about Moses and the law and the old covenant and they are very concerned about discipline and rigor in life. That's who these guys are. But they miss the point completely. Because what they say is the same thing that wolves and wolfish teachers say everywhere. It's what defines the core, and when we notice it, we see it's what misses the core and must be rejected. A righteousness that comes by my works. That is a lie. A righteousness that comes by my works, by my rigorous obedience to the law of Moses. That's what they offered. That's what they dressed up as. And it sounds so scriptural, sounds so mosaic, so, so much like a prophet of the Old Testament, so much like the commandments of Jesus who taught us such and such and such. And they missed the point. This is what we're on guard against. This is what we're watching for. Wolves and wolfishness offer up righteousness, but they offer up a righteousness that is by my works. Be on guard. All of the commandments of the New Testament and all of the laws of Moses in the Old point us towards our duty indeed and in the same breath point us towards our inability and our need. This is what Paul and what a true minister knows, that the message of the Bible is not about how I exalt myself with my obedience and become worthy of attaining but how this one and this one alone is righteous and humbled himself to go to the cross to do the things that I need done for me, to pay the sin penalty for my unrighteousness and for yours, and to do that living perfectly in obedience to God, the only one who ever did. He alone had a righteousness to give and he alone had a payment for unrighteousness to give. And he gave both of those things to me and to you if you trust him. This is the gospel. We find righteousness given from God in Christ, credited to our account. We find our unrighteousness paid for by Christ. And then we find that him now living in us by his power, he grows us, he changes us to walk increasingly in obedience to God 
day after day and year after year. Not one bit did we earn this. Not one bit do we deserve it. It's the righteousness of Christ given, not worked out. This is the core of the gospel. This is what we have to watch for when we're looking for wolves or wolfishness. The gospel is how God makes us righteous in Christ by grace. And Satan and his servants will not lay down their lives to lead people to Jesus. To that Jesus. To that Jesus. They may lay down their lives to lead them to some sort of a Jesus, but not this one of the Bible. Watch for that. Stay on guard against it. Cling to Jesus the exalted and humbled one, the crucified and raised one, as our only hope, his grace alone, received by faith alone, as recorded in the Bible alone, to the glory of God alone, is alone the way that we become righteous. That is the gospel that exalts. And it is free to all who hold out empty hands and humbly ask God to fill them by his grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you. We've had a chance this morning to think about what you have done, and I want to say thank you for it. And then at the same time, I want to ask you, would you do more still and grow us up and move us towards this kind of modeled and taught heart? A grasping of how we are made righteous by you and then a willingness to lay down our lives to help others grasp that. Lord, make us that kind of a people, please. Would you grow us up to make us a church that cares about other people and looks for what needs to be done that they might know you and then steps into it. Make us that kind of a church. Create that kind of a culture here, please. Start with me. Start with the other pastors and staff. Start with the elders. Make us a church like that, please. And make us also alert to what is wrong what is false, deceptive, and destructive. I guess what I'm praying, Lord, is that you would mature us, that you would help us become more like you. Do that work in us, we pray. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
we invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121. 